Let's uh, open up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word and what it means to our heart and our lives. And pray that you'd bless the teaching of it tonight, Lord, that you be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. <clears throat> Lord, we lift up Pastor Paul to you, and I pray, Lord, that uh, he's doing well uh, there in the emergency room, that they're getting things figured out. And we do know this. He's in your hands, in your care. We just pray that you would touch him and heal him, we pray, Lord. Father, we love you, and uh, Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for us that we can have this wonderful relationship with you through the work that you have done. And so we just want to commit these things to you, give thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 tonight. And uh, I don't see any reason why not. I think we're going to go through the whole chapter, so... Uh, yeah, I know. Amazing, huh? <clears throat> As we approach this chapter, we just want to be mindful of what Paul has been addressing. He's been dealing with the Judaizers there in Galatia that have been coming in and trying to convince people that what they need to do is get underneath, uh, back, or to come under the law, trying to find righteousness in the works of the law which Paul has made it very clear and, and uh, has established from the very beginning that uh, salvation is not through the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Uh, and so he has, in these first four chapters, been making a big case for that and, uh, and pointing out the fallacy of, of their trying to bring them underneath the law. And so in chapter 5 and verse 1, he starts out, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So Paul says to them, he says, look, he says, you need to keep standing in the liberty in which we have been set free by faith in Christ, and stop being held again by a yoke of bondage. And Paul had been making this point that in Christ there is freedom. In faith in Christ there is freedom. But to put yourself underneath the law then brings you into bondage. Uh, trying to obtain righteousness through the works of the law is a never-ending battle that you cannot, you cannot do. And uh, Paul had, had pointed that out to them. And so he's telling them, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Stand fast in what you have in Christ. In verse 2, he says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You, in verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. So Paul uh, you know, obviously one of the things that the Judaizers were trying to convince these people to do was to become cir circumcised. Uh, <clears throat> that, you know, that distinguishes, even still in this day, it often distinguishes Jews from Gentiles. Circumcision does. I'll tell you a quick story. I had a friend of mine uh, when I lived over in West Sac, a neighbor who uh, was Russian. His father was in World War II and uh, he was actually uh, captured by the Nazis. 
and they were going to send him to the to Auschwitz. And uh, you know how he proved that he wasn't a Jew? He wasn't circumcised. I mean, that's how critical it is. You know, for the Jew, I mean, it is, that is the right of, of Judaism, is to be circumcised on the eighth day of a child. And it's still that way, even amongst those who would not consider themselves to be practicing Jews. It's really kind of funny how it works. You have people, their Jewish heritage, and they claim that Jewishness, but then as they grow up, they don't, they're not brought up in the Jewish faith, if you will, but yet they still will practice certain things, circumcision being one of them. Another one is bar mitzvah, or bar, bar mitzvah, which is one is a boy and one is a girl. Even if they're non-practicing, they still will have those celebrations. And, uh, but yet they can grow up all their life not really going to synagogue, not practicing the Sabbath, not you know, doing a lot of those things, but still consider themselves Jews. And circumcision is one of those things that is pretty much a given that you're going to get if you are uh, a Jewish male. But Paul is making sure that they understand that because of being in Christ, that that circumcision really, it means nothing. It, it benefits you nothing. There's nothing, it doesn't make you special. And, but yet, I'm sure this was probably one of the big selling points of the Judaizers. If you were a, a male and you've come to faith in Christ, now you must be circumcised. You have to keep the law. You have to do all these other things. And this would have been one of the high points because the, every Jewish male would have been so. But Paul says, if you do that, it's really not going to do anything for you. It's not going to profit you anything. It's not going to make you any more a Christian. It's not going to make you any more righteousness, or righteous. It's not going to make you any more holy. And so he also warns them. He says, look, if you buy into that, if you buy into where now you have to be circumcised, then you have to keep the whole law. That is, you can't just keep part of the law. If you're going to bring yourself under the law, you have to keep the whole law, which, of course, uh, we know, and Paul knew this too, and he'd been telling them all along, it's impossible. We can't keep the law. Nobody could ever keep the law. There's only one that kept the law, and that was Christ. And he came, kept the law, fulfilled the law uh, in every way. And he's the only one. And so, you know, it's impossible for men to obtain righteousness through the keeping of the law. But yet, they were being told that's what they needed to do. In verse 4, where he says there that they would have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. So the Galatian Christians had lost their hold upon the grace for daily living, which was up to this time, had been ministered to them by the Holy Spirit. God's grace manifests itself in three ways, in justification, in sanctification, and in glorification. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer. Therefore, grace here must be interpreted as the daily grace for living of which the Galatian Christians were depriving themselves. There is grace that we live every day under the, the direction and the leading of the Holy Spirit and God's holy word. But because they had lost their hold upon sanctifying grace, it doesn't mean that God's grace had lost its hold upon them in the sphere of justification. Because they had refused to accept God's grace in sanctification is no reason why God should withdraw his grace for justification. 
And of course, I bring this out because it, the term that is here, it says that you have fallen from grace. So what does that mean? Justification is a judicial act of God done once for all. Sanctification is a process which goes on all through the Christian's life. Just because the process of sanctification is temporarily retarded in a believer's life does not say that his justification is taken away. If that were the case, then the retention of salvation would depend upon the believer's works and then salvation would not depend upon grace anymore. And we find ourselves in the camp of the Judaizers in ancient and also modern times as well. So it's not talking about that you can lose your salvation. That's not what it's saying there. But what it is saying is that what you're doing when you do that, then you have fallen away from that grace of walking with God day by day and walking in the spirit of God and the wholeness and the fullness of the spirit. In verse 5, it says, For we, we, through the spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Thus the secret of victory over sin is found, not in attempted obedience to a law that has been formally repealed, but in subjection to a divine person, the Holy Spirit, who at the moment the sinner places his faith in the Lord Jesus, that spirit takes up residence, permanent residence in his being for the purpose of ministering to his spiritual needs. So in other words, that is through the Holy Spirit that we walk out that grace and faith in Jesus Christ. I love the way that Paul puts it here. He says, for through the Spirit, uh, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. In other words, there, there, we look at ourselves and we see how miserably short we fall, right? All of us, it doesn't matter who it is. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord, how how holy and righteous you are, you still fall miserably short of the mark of perfection that God has set as a standard. And so we, we have that a desire always to be being changed and transformed by the power of God through his Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says here, he says that we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness through the Holy Spirit. There's an anticipation that as I walk with Christ day by day by day, and as I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, that righteousness increases in my life. Not that positional righteousness before God. I'm determined to be righteous before God when I accept Christ as my Savior. But there is a process of sanctification that each day then I am drawing nearer to Christ and becoming more Christ-like. You know, we should be able to look back in our life, no matter how old we are in Christ today, we should be able to look in our life and see that we are more like Christ today than we were a year ago, six months ago, whatever it may be. And that's that process that's taking place. And so Paul says we eagerly wait for that hope of righteousness. We look for that happening in our life. We're anticipating. We want it. We desire it. And so we're eagerly awaiting that to happen in our lives. Verse 6 for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So Paul states it again. He makes it very clear. Circumcision does nothing. 
Uncircumcision does nothing. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. But what it matters is that you have faith, that you believe in Christ, that you believe in the work that he has done, and that you're trusting in him and him alone for your salvation. Verse 7, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. So he asked this question. He says, who is it that has hindered you? Who convinced you of something other than the truth? You remember uh, last week or a couple weeks ago when we were looking at verse 16 in chapter 4, when Paul made that statement, he says, have I now become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And it's funny how things work. I've seen it happen so many times. You have people that somebody will tell them something that's really not true and not beneficial in your walk with Christ, but yet they'll believe that. But yet when you try to tell them the things that will enhance their walk with Christ and cause them to grow, they don't want anything to do with that. They reject it. It's amazing to me to see that happen in people's lives. But it does. Here, Paul asks that question. Who's the one that did that to you? Who's the one that hindered you? Who's the one that threw up the obstacle, the roadblock, who tripped you up, who caused you to stumble in this walk of faith, in your freedom? Remember, this is what we're dealing with. They're being told that what they need is to be brought under the subjection of the law of God. Paul's saying, who's the one that threw that roadblock in front of you? He's going to have some comments to say about them in a little bit as he answers that question. He makes sure that they understand that that persuasion does not come from God. That comes from somebody who is a false teacher. And he says, this is how it affects you. In verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So the idea there is that when you cook bread, you put yeast in there. It's called leaven. And a little bit of leaven in that lump of, of flour mix will penetrate through the whole loaf. And you're counting that on that if you're making bread, right? You want to see it rise. You want to see it get bigger. You, know? you want it to puff up. That's what you're hoping for. That's why the yeast is there. Without yeast, then it's just a tortilla. Seriously. It's, it's the same makings. A tortilla is the same makings as bread without yeast, Right? So you're hoping for that. But Paul is telling them this idea of circumcision, that you have to understand that if you buy into circumcision, then you need to understand you have to buy into the whole of the law, every bit of the law, which is impossible for us to keep. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That one little thing, you know, I, I can just imagine this because I, uh, I can just see it, you know, some guy going, well, you know what, I'll, I'll just get circumcised to make them happy. But it won't. Because from there, it will be, there will be an expectation. They'll keep the rest of the law as well. Paul says it will permeate through the whole thing. Verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So Paul, he, he's making it very clear. He says, look, he said, I have confidence in you. 
that as I'm writing to you and I'm telling you these things, that you're going to believe the truth, that you're going to hold on to the truth, and you're not going to buy into this. But whoever it is that's troubling you, well, he's going to have to pay for it. He will bear his own judgment. Paul gets pretty excited when people start messing with the sheep. Anytime there's a false teacher, anytime there's something that's going on, he has a lot to say about them. And he's, he doesn't mince words, and he doesn't hold back in mentioning names. I think of Alexander the coppersmith, who Paul makes mention of him as one who had betrayed him, turned his back on the Lord and betrayed him. Paul didn't hesitate to, to say that man's name and to point out what he was. Here we see that Paul makes it clear that whoever he is, he will face judgment from God. Verse 11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So the idea here, of course, is that Paul is being persecuted. And he says here, he says, If I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? So I, I believe that there is a good possibility that what was being said of Paul is that he was really a hypocrite. That he said one thing, but he did something else. You remember what happened when Paul was taking uh, Timothy to Jerusalem. Do you remember what Paul did? Actually, when he took him on his missionary journeys. What did Paul do? He took Timothy and he circumcised him. Right? Right? Now, Timothy, he, he was considered a Jew. Both his grandmother and his mother were, were Jews. That makes him technically a Jew, right? That, and I don't, don't ask me to explain how it works. I just know that when it comes to the, line, the lineage of Jewishness, it's through the mother that it comes. I think it's a great type, a great sign, right? Jesus was a Jew right through his mother, <laughs> right? <laughs> so anyways... Uh, but he took Timothy because he wanted to be able to take him in to all the inner circles, if you will, of the Jews uh, and that they would have to receive him because he was circumcised. Without being circumcised, then he would have been an outcast. Titus, on the other hand, who was totally a Gentile, and you remember when we were in the book of Titus uh, that Paul, or in Timothy, that Paul said that even with Titus when he took it, he was not compelled to be circumcised. Even though he was a Gentile, and he was in that, that circle, if you will, he wasn't compelled to get circumcised because he was a Gentile. But now Timothy, on the other hand, he was a Jew. And so it was advantageous for ministry for Timothy to go ahead and get super circumcised. He had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, a Greek, uh, Roman father, a Greek father, I'm sorry. And so it may have been that they were saying about Paul that he was a hypocrite. He says on the one hand, circumcision does nothing for you, but look what he did with Timothy. But then he can point easily to Titus, who he didn't take and have circumcised because he was not a Gentile. That is a possibility here for that. But nonetheless, if he still preached circumcision, then he would not suffer persecution. And then the offense of the cross had ceased. And so what's the offense of the cross? What is it that is so offensive? Well, the cross makes a very clear statement, and that is this, that there's only one who hung on it, and there's only one who rose from the dead from it, 
And there's only one who sits at the right hand of the Father. And there's only one way to heaven. And that's through Jesus Christ. So the cross represents that, that way, that, that one way of salvation. And so it's offensive. As a matter of fact, you can, I guarantee you, you can go out in public, strike up a conversation with someone and talk about anything but politics, right? And anything but Christianity. Often people say, oftentimes people say uh, they don't like to talk religion, but that's not true. You can bring up other forms of religion other than Christianity and people will, are more than willing to talk to you. Because you can have this belief in Hinduism or Buddhism or Confucianism or whatever other isms that you want to think of. But don't talk about Christianity because it is offensive to others that they have to bring themselves to yield to this truth. That Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, but through me. There's no other way. So that's offensive to people. Matter of fact, we're getting ready uh, this uh, Friday and Saturday. Uh, we got a group that's coming in. We're going to do a little evangelism training for evangelism trainers. So some of us are going to get training on how to train others to do evangelism. So we'll be going out and doing evangelism, street evangelism, just going out in public and talking to people about Jesus. It'll be interesting to see what happens. You guys remember Brenton Powers? who was just here, I don't know, what, about three weeks ago? He got attacked down at Santa Cruz. Physically got attacked uh, for preaching the gospel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, praise the Lord. I mean, he's back out there doing it again. It doesn't slow him down, you know. He knows that uh, it just comes with the territory. And it's becoming more and more offensive to the people in our culture, the gospel is. And they don't want to hear it. Which is unfortunate because it, we're not offering them anything except for eternal life, right? We're not, we're not offering them, you know, that they have to support our church or anything. We're not asking them for money or anything else. We're just saying, here, here you go. You can have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we let the Holy Spirit do the rest of it from there. But it is offensive to many. He says in verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now this is, this is a very interesting statement that he makes here. The words cut off are from akapoto. And the word refers to bodily mutilation. Paul expresses the wish that the Judaizers would not stop with circumcision, but would go on uh, to emasculation. That's exactly what he's talking about there. The town of uh, Pessinus was the home of the worship of uh, Sebel, in honor of whom bodily mutilation was practiced. The priest of Sebel castrated themselves. So Paul says, you know what? I wish these guys wouldn't stop with just a little circumcision. I wish they'd go ahead and cut themselves off. That's what he's talking about there, you know. Good old Paul, right? Mixed company teaching. It's always wonderful. That's one of those messages you like to have just in the men's group, right? Don't need a bunch of ladies in here talking about it. 
but it's the truth. That's what Paul was talking about. Paul, Paul had some very strong feelings about these people who were leading the Gentile believers away from the truth of the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ and bringing them into bondage unto the law. And, and because of that, I mean, he's, he's a passionate guy. You know, when it comes to those that would speak lies and, and de you know, deceive the flock of God, Paul would make a strong stand, and he's certainly making a very strong statement here when he says this. In verse 13, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the believer has come out from under whatever control uh, divine law had over him. And in salvation, it has been placed under a superior control, that of the indwelling Holy Spirit, who exercises a stricter supervision over the believer than the law did over the unbeliever whose restraining power is far more effective than the law's restraining power ever was, and who gives the believer both the desire and the power to refuse the wrong and to choose the right thing, which the law never was able to do. So in other words, this liberty that we have, it really gives us the freedom not to sin. Where before, the law could never do that. The law could never give us that freedom not to. It just told us that we shouldn't. And because of that, there was no empowering to overcome except for self-will and determination. And we call that the work of the flesh. And Paul will talk about that more as we get on into our chapter. And we had this to say about this. He said, the antidote against using their liberty from the law as a pretext for sinning is found in the exhortation, by love serve one another. The Greek word for love here is, is agape, which refers not to human affection, but to divine love. The love produced in the heart of the yielded believer by the Holy Spirit and the love which, with which that believer should love his fellow believers. This love is a love whose chief essence is self-sacrifice for the benefit of the one who is loved. Such a love means death to self, and that means defeat for sin, since the essence of sin is self-will and self-gratification. So obviously, one of the things that was being said to, about Paul to them, about the believers there, is cheap grace. That because of the fact that they weren't under the law, that it didn't matter what they did, and Paul's going to talk about that at the last half of this when he gets into what the works of the flesh are and what the fruit of the Spirit is. Uh, he will look at that and he will point these things out. But Paul is telling them here that don't use that liberty to exercise the flesh. And don't use that liberty to say, oh, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm saved. I have the blood of Jesus over my life, and I can live however I want to. Well, that, that is a proof text that you don't know Christ. If you believe that, if that's your heart, you don't know Christ. Because if you know Christ, you won't want to live that way. Because the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, and there's the conviction. You know, I don't know how many of you 
uh, were like this. But, you know, when I got saved, there wasn't a lot of things that people had to tell me that I needed to stop doing in my life because the Holy Spirit was doing a real good job about that. He was the one that was telling me. Now, I might have been a little slow about it sometimes. You know, I've shared my story about how after I got saved, I was smoking dope and reading the Word. until it, And the Holy Spirit was convicting me on that. And then a friend of mine and I bought a pound. We start breaking it up. And I'm telling him about Jesus as we're breaking up a pound and smoking the doobie. And he says, how can you do that? How can you, I do what? He says, how can you sit there, do this with me and tell me about Jesus? He saw the hypocrisy in it and he wasn't a believer. But the Holy Spirit was and, and I, I gave in to the conviction of the Spirit right there at that, at that time and said, okay, you're absolutely right. Here, take it all. Go, give him my 50 bucks back after you sold it off. I want my money back. But other than that, I don't care. I, I don't want any, no profit from it or anything. And the Holy Spirit was really good about that, about making sure that I didn't continue in that lifestyle that I was coming out of at that time. And, and to be honest with you, rather quickly in my life, those things began to drop off. The Lord had a purpose in that in my life, that he wanted to be able to reach some folks and that powerful testimony of overcoming in my life was very critical in doing that. Two of those being my mom and my dad and how it convinced them there was a God when they saw the radical change in my life. The Holy Spirit is good at that. And if we, if we think that because we know Christ now we have this great liberty to just do whatever we want to, that's not the case. You can, but your life won't be very fulfilling if you do the more you give yourself over to christ and follow him and and let him work out those things of our flesh the better we're a better life that we are going to have i honestly could say and i could say this even though make sure you understand this when i say it even if christ wasn't real what has happened in my life by giving myself to christ is good enough that it wouldn't matter to me if it was real or not it has made such a huge change and difference in my life but the good thing is, it is real, it's true, and Christ is, is able to do all that he said that he would do and more in my life, and especially in the area that I have the benefit of eternal life. The word for serve here is from the word doulo, which means to render service to, to do that which is for the advantage of someone else. So by way of reminder, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty, not only to use liberty as an opportunity, uh, do not use liberty as an opportunity to flesh, but through love serve one another. And undoubtedly, I mean, I still am not as good at this as I would like to be, but I was real bad about it when I didn't know Christ. I served no one but myself. I didn't serve anybody. I could care less about anybody else unless it benefited me. If I was going to get something out of it, then that was good. But if it wasn't, then I could have cared less about you. Well, that heart, the Lord comes in your heart, he changes that. Now, now it's about others rather than yourself. You know, it's one of those things that helps us to, to see the indwelling Holy Spirit and to realize that we truly do belong to Christ. Verse 14, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So now he exhorts them to love one another. If they do this, he says, 
they will fulfill the law. You remember the, the, the um, yeah, Pharisee, I believe it was. I'm trying to remember it was a Pharisee. It, I, it was, I'm sure. I think he was called a lawyer, though, came to him and asked him what the greatest commandment was. And the Lord said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like an unto it, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, you know, that's true, you know. And, and it is true. And, and so as we love others, we do fulfill the law of God. When we love God, what happens is all the things that we shouldn't be doing, we won't do because we know that it offends our Father. And if we're loving Him and being obedient to Him, then those things are going to be coming out of our life and off of us. And as that happens, then we start loving others. And as we do that, then we see the love of Christ through us and into other people's lives. And there is this great fulfillment that takes place because it is so contrary to the life that we lived. Before we accepted Christ, we couldn't care less about God. And we couldn't care less about others. But then when we have that new nature in us, when we have the Holy Spirit in us, all of a sudden now, those two things become very valuable and important to us. That we love God, and because of that, we want to obey God out of love, not because of the strictness of the law, but simply because we love Him. And the natural thing will happen as we will do those things. I mean, think about it. You would think it to be quite bizarre if somebody was a professional thief, but yet he said he loved God. Right? You would. Because you know that's contrary to what loving God is. If you love God, you're not going to be a thief. If you love God, you're not going to covet your neighbor's wife. If you love God, you're not going to be a liar. If, you're not, if you love God, you're not going to do those things because you know that it is offensive to God and to others as well. And before, you may not have given a rip about it, but now, because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you do. You care. You care about those things. It's one of those things about knowing Christ that's a, a bit of a, um, a dichotomy to me. And that how it is that, and we'll talk about this in a minute when we're talking about the battle between the flesh and the spirit, but how is it that I, I can have this within me that I no longer want to do those things that I once did? But yet, at times I do. At times I still want to be that way. Verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you become consumed by another. The word bite and devour and consumed are used commonly in classical Greek in connection with wild animals in deadly struggle. The passage itself, nor the context, tells us in so many words to what this condition of strife was due, but most probably it was strife over the matters on which the Judaizers were unsettling them. The words constitute a strong expression of partisan hatred resulting in actions that lead to mutual injury. In other words, and you know what, I, I can so easily see this as I have seen so many times, even within the church, how there's division over things that are really non-critical and nonsense, uh, you know, essential. In this case, they would have considered these things to be essential doctrines, 
right? Whether or not you follow the law or not follow the law. There, I'm sure there was a group of them that said, no, Paul says we're, we are free. We have liberty. We don't have to follow the law. And then there's another group of them that are being convinced by them. They're saying, wait a minute, no, these guys are telling us this. I think it's that. And so then you have this big clash. You have these two groups that are coming at one another. And Paul tells them there. He says, look, he says, you know, don't be consumed by one another. Don't fight over these things. Understand what the truth is. Don't bite and devour one another. And so he gives them that warning. By consuming one another, Paul does not mean that they will lose their status as Christians, but that such altercation within the Christian churches will at length, be, if persisted in, destroy the organic community life of the churches. And that's what happens when there are things that enter in that you divide over and that's why it's, it's so critical that if there's division, it, it really has to be justified. Because what it does is it breaks down the continuity of the community of the church. As a matter of fact, you ever heard a non-believer uh, say to you, I want nothing to do with the church. All they do is argue with one another. They fight. They can't get along. You know, one guy says this is right. One guy says that's right. And those kind of divisions within the church, some of them are necessary. Some, but I'd, I'd probably say 90% of them are not. But yet we're constantly, you know, squabbling over those things. And that's why, I, you know, I know what I believe and I know what I teach here. And I'll stand on that, right? But there are a lot of things that I teach that I won't divide over with somebody. You know, I'll use this as an example, baptism. I, I totally believe in immersion. I believe it's very clear. I see it in the scripture. I believe it's practice of Christ. It was the practice of the first century church, you know, and we have documents to even prove that. But then there are those that believe in sprinkling and they see that as being adequate as far as the, the, the rite of baptism. Now, I love them. I, I think they're wrong, but I love them. And it's not something that I would not fellowship with them over. It's non-essential. But when it comes to the deity of Christ, the, the, uh, whether or not you know, uh, salvation is through Christ and Christ alone, those are definitely things that I would divide over with some. I, I won't even divide over uh, uh, things such as the eschatological view, views of the church. Uh, I know what I believe, I know what I teach, and I'm going to keep doing that. But as long as somebody, if they want to come here and they disagree with me, as long as they want to come here and disagree and they don't go around trying to tell everybody else in the church they disagree, they're welcome. But that's because I'm, I'm responsible for what's taught at this church. And, you know, if I you guys would not want to follow me if I was wishy-washy. Well, it might be, that. oh, it could be that. Oh, maybe it's this. No, I've, I've had to study it through and determine what, what I believe and why I believe it and then teach it. That's what God has called me to do. But we need to be careful that if we divide over issues, then it needs to be something that's worthy of division. Verse 16, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The legalist says, don't walk in the flesh, and you will walk in the Spirit. But Scripture says, walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Completely contrary. It's real simple. If you're walking in the Spirit, then what will happen is you will not want to satisfy the flesh. Paul introduces a statement intended to counteract 
erroneous impressions held by the Galatians, possibly at the suggestion of the Judaizers, that without the restraining influence of the law, they would fall into sin instead of attempted law obedience in their own strength motivated by terrors of the law. Paul admonishes them to continue to govern their lives by the inward impulses of the Holy Spirit. He says, look, he says, just walk in the Spirit. It, we, <laughs> we, sometimes we make things way too complicated. I'll, I'll just uh, tell you what the word walk means. It literally means uh, to walk about. But when used in a connection like this, it refers to the act of conducting oneself or ordering one's manner of life or behavior. So in other words, to walk just simply means to have a determination to head toward the Lord, to do the will of the Lord. Now, in that, it doesn't say here, be perfect in your walk, and you're going to be okay. It just says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So that walking in the Spirit is having that, that direction in your life that you have determined. You know, it's real simple. Each morning when you get up, it's like, Lord, here I am. I want to do your will. Direct my steps. Lead me in the way that I should go. Lord, I got a few things I got to do here. Be with me as I go because they're necessary in my life. Like I got to go to work and do that. But Lord, would you direct me while I'm there at work? Would you give me encounters and possibilities of being able to share the gospel with others? Would you use me for your glory this day? Right? That's, that's having that walk. It's a determination to do the will of God in your life. But don't kid yourself. It doesn't mean that you won't stumble through the day. Sometimes you will. You'll have days. You'll have that, that person that comes around you that really does bring the flesh out in you. I know you guys aren't that way. I am that way. Right? I'm constantly having to deal with that in, in my own life. And that is when people rile my flesh. And, you know, I'm, I'm usually happy if I can come away without showing that I'm getting angry, you know, if I can just make everybody think that I'm doing fine, I'm all right, you know, but then the prayer after that is, oh, Lord, help me, you know, because it, it, I, I negotiated that, but I didn't negotiate it well enough that I felt that I had victory over it. I'll give you a quick example. I don't want to go too long with it because of the fact that I'll run out of time, but uh, you know, I remember the day when I had victory over swearing. And, uh, you know, I'd, I had had a real bad problem with swearing in my life, and the Lord cleaned my mouth up. But the problem was, is that it wasn't coming out of my mouth anymore, but it was still in my head. It was still there. And so when something would happen, these thoughts would come into my head. Those words would pop into my head. And now, by the grace of God, they didn't pop out of my mouth. But I remember the day when I smashed my thumb with a hammer at work. And I grabbed my thumb and I just began to praise the Lord. And oh, Lord, Lord, help me, help me, help me. And about that time, I started cracking up. And my, the guy that I was working next to thought I was nuts. That's all right. I, he could think I was nuts. But the thing of it is, is that I realized that what didn't come to my mind and didn't come to my heart was all the foul language. It was Jesus. Victory. And so, you know, I look for that victory uh, in the area of my 
quick-temperedness. Even though I may be able to disguise it and hide it, I'm waiting for that day when, you know, it, it, and this happens to be something the Lord's working on me right now, and, and that I have those victories in my life where it's no longer even, even there, that I just don't get angry with people. The, right, the uh, wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's what the scriptures tell us. So it's critical that we, we don't do that. So, walking. It's setting your course. It's like, this is where I'm going. I'm headed towards the Lord today. In all that I say and do, I'm heading towards the Lord. The word lust refers to, the, to a strong desire, impulse, or passion. The context it indicating whether it is good or an evil one. The word flesh refers here to the depraved nature of a person, the power of which is broken when the believer is saved. Therefore, the lust of the flesh refers to the evil desires, impulses, and passions that are constantly arising from the evil nature. The evil nature is not eradicated. Its power over the believer is broken, and the believer need not obey it. But it is there constantly attempting to control the believer as it did before salvation um, came into your life. It's always there. There is that battle in verse 17. It says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. There's a war between the flesh nature and the new man's spirit. For the flesh constantly has that strong desire to suppress the spirit, and the spirit constantly has a strong desire to suppress the flesh. And these are entrenched in an attitude of mutual opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you desire to do. So what's the answer to that? I think it's really important that we understand we determine which is going to have victory in our life, the spirit or the flesh, a lot by what one we're feeding. If you're feeding the spirit, you're praying, you're reading, you're fellowshipping, you're doing all these things, you're going to find that there's going to be less occasions where the flesh wins out, but that the spirit wins. So the more that, that I spend my time with God and his word and with God's people, I'm going to find strength and ability to overcome the flesh, my fleshly desires. If I spend too much time away from those things, you know, I, I can, and I'm just like the rest of you, sometimes life gets really busy, you know, and I got to get up and get in the morning, I got to go and everything, and I'm a morning guy. I do my devos in the mornings, right? And if I don't do them in the mornings, then I usually don't get around to them during the day. I'm just not that kind of person. That's why it's important to me to have that discipline in my life that I have my devos in the mornings. And you know when I can tell when I've missed too many devos? By my flesh. My anger. How I speak to my wife. How I treat her. You know, all these different things. I can. It doesn't take but just a brief second. Oh, I think I missed too many devos. I think I better get back with it, right? Uh, it's a devotion in the morning, reading and, and praying. Uh, and so it's a devotion with God, spending time with God and, and spending that time in his word and also in communication with him 
in prayer. That's what a Devo is. Thank you for the question. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness. Some of these are, are very evident, obvious. I don't need to go into definitions. Uh, but we'll just kind of highlight them a little bit. Of course, adultery speaks for itself, right? Fornication. Fornication is any sex outside of the bonds of marriage. Doesn't matter what it is, it's wrong. Uncleanness, that's one that we may not be familiar with. It is impure motives. Impure motives. Lewdness is unbridled lust, excess licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, and insolence. That's a, that's a huge definition for one word, isn't it? But it is, it is all those things. And Paul said to the Galatians, you have a clearly defined standard by which to decide whether you are being led by the Spirit or by the flesh. Each is known by its particular works or fruits. So we see a partial list here. We go on in verse 20. Idolatry, sorcery, that's one that kind of needs some definition. It certainly does include witchcraft, but this particular word is pharmakia, and it's where we get our word for pharmacy, drugs. And don't kid yourself, in their day, they, they had those practices too. There were concoctions of various herbs and stuff that they did. It, it doesn't matter just because something's natural. It doesn't make it right or good, okay? Mushrooms are natural, <laughs> but and it's so funny, you know, they're, they're actually, they're trying to legalize mushrooms in California now, right? They want, they want to start using LSD for therapy. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what Timothy Leary and the boys were all trying to do. That's how they got started with that stuff, right? It was all about, uh, you know, psycho, uh, you know, psycho diseases and stuff, mental diseases. And they're trying to legalize that stuff. Well, it shouldn't surprise us, they legalize pot. They legalize all this other stuff, and, and they say that there is nothing wrong with it. But every bit of it, just because it's natural, doesn't mean it's good. You know, arsenic's natural, too, but we don't want to take that, right? Um, idolatry is, is self-explanatory. Anything that would take the place of God in our life, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outburst of wrath. That's, a, that's one I think I want to just enumerate very quickly, and that is that's uncontrollable anger. That is getting to where you are out of control. You're screaming, you're yelling, you're throwing things. You know, you're doing all this stuff. You're using language you normally wouldn't use. All that kind of stuff. That's an outburst of wrath. And, and he says, that's a work of the flesh. That, that's not of God. That's the work of our flesh. Selfish ambitions. And boy, that's a natural for, for some of us. I'm in one of those. Dissensions. You know, that's divisions. Heresies, false doctrines, teachings, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. You know what revelries are? It's an interesting thing. It got the word in the Greek, it speaks of those who used to go about the city after they would all get drunk and they would party and dance down the streets and they would go from house to house of people that they knew. It sounds like my old days, man, when I used to party. <laughs> Revelries, yeah, man, that's what we used to do, man. Yeah, from house to house. And I like this, he says, and the like. So he says, this is just a partial list. 
This is some things. These are some of the big hitters. I'll throw those out there at you. But understand, it's not an all-inclusive. There is more. And I love that because, to be honest with you, it really does leave a great opening for the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives. Because there are things in my life that God says that I cannot do and should not do because of how it affects me. But it may not affect you. And it leaves that room for the Holy Spirit to speak to us individually about this is not right for Bob. And that's okay. It, it, doesn't, have, it doesn't mean that it's not right for me, that it's not right for you. It, it may be, and I'm not going to give you an example right now. But the truth is, is that there are things in my life that, that I cannot do. Because if I do, then it begins, I, I feel the flesh. It makes my flesh strong. And I want, I want to feed the spiritual man, not the fleshly man. I want the spiritual man to be strong. I want victory in my life. Verse 21, continuing on, he says, Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's real simple. If somebody has made a lifestyle out of these things, and for them to think that they're going to live that way, and somehow or another they're going to inherit the kingdom of God, they're deceiving themselves. It's like our, our memory verse for this month, right? 1 John 1, 8 and 9 that if we say that we have no sin, that we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves when we say, I have no sin. I do, right? But God is faithful and just that if we confess our sins, that he will forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I left a few parts out of there. I don't want you to get too excited thinking that I've memorized it already. I'm still working on it. But the truth is, is that it, that this is the whole thing that, that God says is that we will not inherit the kingdom of God if this is the practice of our life. And as a matter of fact, I think we all could agree that there is a measure of how we look at someone and determine whether or not they're really a part of the church and the kingdom of God or not is by the life that they live. It is, Jesus said it best, they, they, you will know them by their fruits. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. When I look at this here, I mean, the fruit of the Spirit is love. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, to be honest with you, everything else comes out of love. Just as in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, Paul gives this description of what love is. And out of that, it comes, it, it, Paul even made it clear in the beginning of that chapter that, that if this is not a part of who you are, suffering long, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't parade itself, is not puffed up, doesn't behave rudely, seeks not its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, uh, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Paul says this is how we know that we have love in our life. Right? And from that love comes joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Gentleness, self-control. Oh, Paul, did you have to bring that one in? All the other ones, ah, yeah, okay, we can work with that. Self-control. Oh, man, that's a tough one. Right? But Paul makes it very clear that against these things there is no law. 
There's nothing that says that you should not love and should not have gentleness, kindness, long-suffering, self-control, all these different things. And those who are a Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Christians crucified the evil nature with its affections and lust in the sense that when we put when they put their faith in the Lord Jesus as Savior, they received the actual benefits of their identification with Christ in his death on the cross, which benefits were only potential at the time he was crucified. The Christian's identification with Christ and his death resulted in the breaking of the power of the sinful nature over the life. This victory over sin, which the Lord Jesus procured for us at the cross, is made actual and operative in our lives as we yield to the Holy Spirit and trust him for that victory. All of this is only possible as we yield to the Holy Spirit. Because if it's not a yielding to the Holy Spirit, then it's going to be a yielding to some kind of law, which is of no effect, no value in our life relative to the value, compared in value to that of walking in the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to guide and direct us. It is the Holy Spirit's ministry that applies the salvation from the power of the sinful nature which God the Son procured at the cross for us. Thus, the Holy Spirit has a twofold ministry in the saint, that of making actual operative in the life of the Christian, the victory over sin which the Lord Jesus procured for us at the cross, and that for, of producing in the Christian's experience his fruit. But this is he. He is only able to do it in a full, rich measure as the saint puts himself definitely under the subjection of the Spirit. Verse 25, let's finish this up. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So in view of the fact <clears throat> that we have a new life principle operating in our beings, then walk by the Spirit. The word walk is from stichichio, which means to walk in a straight line, to conduct oneself rightly. Step by step, one Christian's walk should conform to the Spirit's direction and enablement, lest believers become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. No doubt, legalism leads to such things. You know, here's the thing. I don't know if you've ever been around people who are really legalistic, but I can tell you this. One of the things they do is that they really are full of themselves. They think they're better than others because they do things better than others. And so that legalism has a tendency to make one think highly of themselves. I am a better Christian than you because I don't do this. Well, it could be. But I guarantee you I'm going to be in heaven just like you are. And uh, you're the one that's all full of conceit. <laughs> So we don't want to trust in the law. We don't want to trust in the Spirit. We want to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And let God do a mighty work in our lives. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your glorious word and what it speaks to our heart. Lord, help us. Lord, as we go through these things, I'm sure we can see ourselves in, in places that are good and some that are bad. Help us, Lord, to draw near to you, be filled with your Holy Spirit. 
Enable us to overcome, Lord. I know by the power of the Spirit that there is no sin that is greater than, than your abilities to be able to deliver us out of and through. Lord, change our hearts and our minds. We need it so desperately. We love you, Lord, so much. Bless us as we go. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys.